You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to welcome you, especially those of you who are new. Maybe you're visiting for the first or second time here at Citizens. We are thrilled to have you. My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're visiting either in person or maybe you're tuning in for the first time uh, online, we're so grateful to have all of you. Uh, before we turn to Matthew 5, I just want to say again, said this a couple weeks ago, but uh, to the, all of those uh, in here right now who have the blue uh, shirts on that volunteered in either elementary or preschool, thank you so much for serving ever since we opened back up. Yeah, praise God. Ever since we opened back, brought our nine back, and then opened kids' ministry back up, I've ran into at least one or two families every Sunday who were able to kind of come back because that was open. And I know that the, uh, the parents and the kids have been so blessed. So thank you uh, to those of you who are serving. Uh, we started last Sunday a new sermon series in a sermon. It's in Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of his most famous teachings, one of his most well-known sermons. And uh, I don't have time to go back and cover all that we covered last Sunday, but there's a lot of context that's really meaningful for understanding uh, what Jesus is saying. And so if you missed last Sunday, uh, please catch it on the podcast or online to fill in some of the background. Uh, This morning, we're going to start where Robin read for us in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But before uh, we talk about what that means, we need to somewhat introduce the next 10 verses. There are nine sayings that are called the Beatitudes, and we're going to be in those for several weeks uh, over this uh, October and then next into November. Uh, but we just need to help, no, he'd help understanding uh, really what those mean uh, and need help under, getting a view of how we are to approach those. So let me offer just a short kind of metaphor for it. When my oldest was about four years old, my son Asher. Uh, I walked into the living room and Asher was trying to stand on his head. And I said, Asher, what are you doing? And his answer surprised me. He said, I'm trying to read this book. And so I walk around the couch and I look and I see that there's a book that he has leaning up against the couch. And the book, uh, he had opened it up. He can't read. He just wanted to fake read it. Um, The book was upside down. And so he was trying to stand on his head so that he could see the book that was upside down. And I said, bud, why, uh, why don't you just turn the book right side up and just sit on the ground and read it? And he goes, dad, I just feel like I need to stand on my head to read the book, right? And so what was interesting about it is in his mind, in his, in his kind of child psyche, he thought he was positioned wrong and the book was positioned right. And so instead of adjusting the book, he adjusted to the upside down book. Hold on to that for just a second. In the beginning of the sermon, Jesus has these eight to nine sayings that are called the Beatitudes. They're called the Beatitudes because of the Latin word for blessed. And you see blessed that comes before each of these nine. But Jesus describes a kind of person in these sayings. He describes a kind of life in these sayings. Would you listen to to what he says about this life? It's poor in spirit, mourning, meek. It also means powerless, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted, reviled. Question, does that sound like a good life? Um, does that sound like a life that maybe people aspire to live? Maybe some of it, 
Maybe merciful is something that we want to be or something that we'd say people should be. Uh, peacemaker is something that's maybe attractive, although it's really messy to live that out. But then you think of poor in spirit. You think of mourning. You think of persecuted. You think of reviled. Much of that that's being described are actually parts of life that we try to avoid. Those are things that we want to not be true about our life. Don't want to be reviled. Don't want to be mocked. Definitely don't want to be in a place where we're mourning something that's sad or mourning something that we've lost, right? So I think that we, there, there's just a, if our knee-jerk reaction, our honest knee-jerk reaction would be that the list that he describes is uh, at, at least a bit out of touch, like what we talked about last week. But here's what he says about that life. It's one word that's repeated nine times in these 12 verses. That life is what? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. And, and that just can't be true. It's got to mean something else than that, right? It's got to require us to kind of interpret it differently, especially when you understand what that word blessed means. So this is important. Uh, when we hear blessed, it kind of has a common understanding culturally or in a vernacular, right? Like too blessed to be stressed or something like that. Uh, and so our understanding of blessed is mostly that blessing is like a divine favor that we get, something that God has done for us. And there is that kind of blessing in the Bible, right? There's a, a really popular blessing, especially now because there's a popular song for from that blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. And what that describes is the opposite of a curse. When God does something, when there's divine favor, divine intervention in your life, that means that things go well for you. And so maybe if that's what that meant, if what it's saying is those who are poor in spirit are going to get a blessing from God, maybe that starts to make a little bit more sense. But that's actually not what that word means used here. That's a different word in Greek. In fact, the word that's used here is really hard to translate into English. It doesn't have a great English equivalent. So maybe some of you have a different translation and yours, instead of it saying blessed are the poor in spirit, it might say happy are the poor in spirit. There are some translations that actually say congratulations to the poor in spirit to try to capture um, the meaning of it. There's a, a New Testament scholar named Jonathan Pennington. He believes the best word to use is, a wor- is the word flourishing. He wrote a whole book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing to make that point. He says the best way to understand it is flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the persecuted. Flourishing are the peacemakers. In Psalm 1, it uses the exact same word when it says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water. That's the picture of the flourishing life, a tree that grows and grows and grows even in heat, and continues to bear fruit even in times of drought. So I don't think it's a perfect synonym, but what comes closest to the shock of what Jesus is saying here would be to take our idea of success and to say successful are the poor in spirit. Successful are the persecuted and reviled. Successful are those who mourn. Do you feel the irony there? Do you feel how it doesn't fit a bit there? And so if I'm honest... That's not the common definition of success I have for life. If you're honest, maybe the same is true. If you think about a life that's flourishing, if you think about a life that's good, these probably aren't the words that naturally come to mind. In fact, there are some things that Jesus lists here that I don't want to be true about my life. Or to put it another way, there are, this is a life that Jesus describes that in some ways I hope is not true for my kids. I don't want them to mourn. I don't want them to be reviled and rejected and persecuted. So something seems wrong, right? It's challenging. What are we to do with these? They seem as if they are upside down. And the impulse 
is going to be to take them and to try to turn them right side up. The impulse is going to be to try to explain them in a way that adjusts them to the way that we're positioned, right? Uh, Like we said last week, one of the dangers in this sermon is to domesticate Jesus' words, to alter them so that they're more palpable for us, so they fit into our lives as they are. And look, Jesus spoke these blessings. He spoke this picture of flourishing. He offers this vision of success, not so that we would adjust his words, but that his words would adjust us. What he describes is a life that's upside down to the way that this world works and he doesn't intend for us to right-side it but for us to be turned upside down by it. And that only makes sense because of the kingdom that he's bringing. That makes sense because of the story that he is writing. If you remember the last week, the scene that we're in right now, the sermon only makes sense if we believe the story behind the sermon and the story behind the sermon is that Jesus brings the kingdom of God and it is already and not yet. It is already and not yet on earth as it is in heaven. But if you remember our illustration, we live in that turn of the seasons where a little bit of fall has poured into the summer and the life that Jesus describes here, it seems out of place, it seems upside down, but we are the people who prepare for the season that's coming to prepare for the kingdom that both is and is to come. And what that's going to look like to the world around us is that we're standing on our head what that's gonna look like to the world around us, to the people who believe it's only summer and there is no fall coming, to the people who believe it's only earth and heaven's not pouring in, this is an upside down life. And it is precisely the kind of life that is lived by those in the kingdom. That's the life that these nine sayings describe, a life that appears to be lacking but is actually flourishing. So we're gonna spend about seven weeks in these sayings, about seven weeks in this picture of the upside down life. In week one, this morning, we'll spend the rest of our time with verse three. Blessed, would you read it with me? Matthew 5, three. Blessed or flourishing or successful or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In my opinion, um, this is the first beatitude that Jesus states because it's the human condition that everything else is predicated on. In other words, he says, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the inverse of that is true. If you're not poor in spirit, you don't belong to the kingdom of heaven. You'll miss the kingdom of heaven. So what he's doing is he's combining two ideas. He's combining the idea of poverty and he's combining the idea of your spiritual condition. So blessed are the poor in spirit. We'll take each in turn. The idea of poverty is really simple. It's those who have little or those who have nothing. It goes deeper than that for Jesus here because uh, in this language, there are three words to describe three different levels of poverty. So there's a word that describes being poor, kind of poor. There's a word that describes being really poor. And then there's a word that describes being as poor as it gets, a destitute poverty, the kind of poverty that is completely dependent on someone else to live and to survive. Which one do you think Jesus is using here? As poor as it gets. So he says, there is a kind of poverty that's destitute. He calls to mind the lowest in society. So maybe if Jesus was preaching that sermon today, he would call our minds to someone in India who belongs to the lowest caste system there. Or maybe he would call our minds to an orphan or a widow in a third world country. And he's saying, he's holding up this picture of a destitute kind of poverty, right? The kind of poverty that is as poor as it gets. The kind of poor that has a great need and then with that great need has no ability to meet that need. And he says, be that kind of poor in spirit. And he says that there's a spiritual condition 
of poverty, those who recognize that that kind of, um, that as we stand before God, there is a great need and no ability to meet that need. And those are flourishing. Here's what he's not saying. He's not trying to put a spin on poverty. This is a way that this verse has been misunderstood for centuries. Poverty is not good. It's not good. Especially the kind of poverty that Jesus describes, right? That it is a picture of what's broken. Poverty exists because it's not completely on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so he's not trying to say that those who are poor are righteous and those who are rich are unrighteous, right? Poverty is not good. And wealth in and of itself is not wicked. Now, there are ways to be unrighteously wealthy. There are ways to have an idolatrous relationship with our wealth. uh, But there's also ways to be righteously wealthy. And there's ways to be good stewards of our wealth, right? What he is saying is this. Please hear me. That there's a kind of physical poverty that puts you in absolute need. There's a kind of physical poverty where you're completely dependent on others. There's a kind of physical poverty where you're stripped of all self-reliance and of all self-sufficiency. And everyone listening to his words, especially those that have gathered around the hill north of Galilee, most of whom are poor, most of whom are destitute, most of whom are at very least blue collar and lower class. And he's holding up the picture of physical poverty and say those who know that there's spiritual poverty, to those who know that spiritually they're as poor as poor gifts, to those who know that they have a great need and no ability to meet that need, they are what? Blessed. They're flourishing. They're they're successful in the world that God is bringing that both is and is to come. There's something that we can't miss this morning, friends. Uh, I do believe that when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, he's using poverty as a metaphor, but it's not simply a metaphor. And it's a warning to those of us who live in the world that we live in who have what we have. And I want us to hear it this morning. It is often the case, goodness, it is often the case that those who are in the physical circumstance of poverty, it's often the case that those who are the have-nots, those who are vulnerable and exposed and in need physically, are the very ones who more readily see their spiritual need, their need for God. And it is also true that those who have a lot, those who have resources, those who have learned in a self-reliant world how to be self-reliant, those who can rely on our resources, that we are the ones who most often miss our need for God. I've said this before, one of the challenges of preaching and being a minister in the South, in the Bible Belt, is not getting people to hear about God. We love hearing about God. He's a household name. It's getting us to understand that the God we're hearing about is the one that we actually need and we actually in our own brokenness are desperate for. And what you see when Jesus comes onto the scene is those who have mostly, by and large, those who have resources are the ones who reject what Jesus is bringing and those who have nothing are the ones who respond to it. You see it all over his ministry. In fact, this little history lesson, if I were to drop you, if you were to just be dropped right into the middle of first century Jerusalem with, the t- with this task, look around, interview people, study the cultural groups, study the different people, and you come back and you tell me who you think is most poised to get the kingdom of God. Who do you think is flourishing right now? Who do you think is successful right now? And when the kingdom comes, they'll be the ones to get it. If you did that, you would come up with three answers. There were three front runners in the first century, three people groups that everyone else thought if the kingdom's going to come, it's gonna come to one of those three. The first were the religious elites. They're guys like the Pharisees, the Jewish lawyers who were, who were students of the Jewish law. And if 
they were going to bring the kingdom through religious merit. These were next level rule keepers and they enforced the law on others and they kept the law themselves with perfection. And I mean it with perfection. And so if the kingdom is going to come through an external righteousness, then maybe they're the ones who are flourishing. Then you've got the zealots. These are rebels. These are people who would launch these small rebellions against Rome, the most famous of which was 100 years before Jesus, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, who was a zealot, who was a, a Messiah figure. And he actually defeated Rome, and he, he had this short-lived freedom for the people, and then Rome killed him again and, and everyone who followed him. But there were more of those around Jesus' time. So the guy that was supposed to be crucified and Jesus took his place, Barabbas, he was a zealot. And he was the kind that was going to bring this kingdom through violence and power. And so maybe another one was going was to come up. And if it's going to come through violent power, if it's going to come through violent anger, then maybe the zealots are going to bring it. So maybe they're the ones that are flourishing. Then you have the cultural elite. These are guys like Herod the Great and the Sadducees that Jesus interacts with. And what they did was they maneuvered their way into places of power and influence and places of, um, of wealth and political position in the Roman Empire. So they largely stopped waiting for the kingdom to come and just joined the one that already existed. And maybe the kingdom's going to come through that kind of compromise, maybe playing the political game, maybe rubbing shoulders with the powerful and the elite. And if it's going to come that way, then these guys, the cultural elite, are going to bring it. Maybe they are flourishing. So three candidates. You've got those who are full of a kind of righteousness. And is it going to come to them? Is the kingdom theirs? You've got those who are full of a violent zeal. Is the kingdom theirs? Then you have those who are full of political clout and influence. Is it going to come to them? And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says the kingdom of God is at hand and it's coming to people who are full of what? Nothing. Nothing. It's coming to those who have nothing. No clout, no resources, no money, no influence, no standing in society. People who, if they have anything at all, all they have are their prayers. Hear me, friends. Jesus does not offer the kingdom to the full. He offers it to the empty. And the people on the hill that are with him, the unimpressive, he offers the kingdom to them, the ones who have little to nothing. Jesus tells a story in Luke 14, and it's just a scandalous story about what happens, how the kingdom of God actually clashes with the values of the world. In Luke 14, he tells a parable about the kingdom of God. He says it's like a banquet. God's throwing this huge feast. He's throwing this huge party and he wants everyone to come. And so the invitation to the kingdom banquet, the invitation to the kingdom party goes out. And it's met with excuses. I just bought land, one says. I just bought livestock, another says. I just got married, one of them says. Every response is this. I have so much, and in having so much, I have so much to do, and I have so much to take care of, and I have so much to rely on, and I have no need for banquets, and I have no need for feasts. I have my own food. 1421 says this. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go into the streets. Find those who are already empty. Find those who are already in need. Find those whose circumstances, whose physical poverty or physical disability has so whittled away at any sort of illusion of self-reliance that when they hear about a feast, they'll say, there's food, I need food. There's fellowship, 
There's welcome, there's acceptance, that's exactly what I need. And they respond and they surround the table and that's exactly what you see in Jesus' ministry. So to the zealots and to the religious and to the cultural elite, they were full and that was their problem. They were full of this illusion that they had the resources to bring the kingdom themselves. They were full of the kinds of things that blind them to how empty they actually are and blind them to see that what Jesus offers is actually for them and it's actually what they need. But the lame, the poor, the empty, they flock to him. They climb the hill to hear his words and they flourish because of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's is the kingdom of heaven. What's the point? I said all that to say this. It's not actually about the circumstance of being poor or the circumstance of being rich. There are wealthy people who follow Jesus. There are Pharisees who follow Jesus. There are zealots who end up following Jesus. But the point Jesus wants to drive home that we cannot afford to miss is a truth. And it's the truth that the poor and the empty and the needy seem to be able to access more easily than those who have a lot. And here's the truth. Our greatest need is God. Our greatest need is God. Friend, look right at me. Your greatest need is God. My greatest need is God. And that need is not just a kind of poor need. It's not just a really poor need. It's an as poor as it gets need that we need God and we can't meet that need. There's nothing that I can do to get to him. He's gonna have to come to me. What does someone who's poor in spirit sound like? That. The poor in spirit can confess from their heart with their mouth, my greatest need is God. And like someone who's as poor as poor gets, who says my greatest need is food and I can't do anything to meet that need. If I'm going to eat, it's gonna be because somebody else feeds me. The poor in spirit say my greatest need is God and I can't get to him if I'm gonna have him. If that need's gonna be met, he's gonna have to come to me. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates verse three. He says you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Those who have come to the end of themselves, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is upside down. That's not right side up. Like we live in a kind of world that says what's right side up is everything except being in need and everything except being dependent. And we have a problem in that right side up world because this is upside down. And if the kingdom is for those who are empty, many of us have a problem. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Most of us are too full to be filled. Because the definition of success and flourishing and being blessed is around us. If we did the beatitude according to the culture around us, according to the stories around us, it would go like this. Successful, blessed are the self-reliant because they can control their life. Blessed, flourishing are the famous because everyone wants what they have. Blessed are the morally superior. They would never do what those people do. Blessed, flourishing are those who have made something of themselves, who have pulled themselves up by their own merit and their own effort. They have earned all they've got and they deserve all they have. That's what's right side up in our world. That's the picture of success and flourishing in our world. Those who are self-reliant are doing well. Those who are famous and morally superior, those who have built themselves up are the ones who are thriving in the world. And that amounts to a society that is too full of themselves and not empty enough to need God. 
not empty enough to acknowledge need for God, too self-reliant and confident in our own resources, too distracted by pursuit of things that numb or cover our need for God. We are too full to be filled. Let me offer it another way. There are a lot of ways that the Bible talks about sin. There are a lot of ways that the Bible will talk about our need for God. It'll talk about it like a sickness. Maybe many of you just taught that. That's how we talk about it in our, in our children's ministries. Uh, the Bible talks about sin as a slavery, but the first picture that you get of sin in the Bible, you know what it is? The very first picture after sin enters, separates heaven and earth, fractures God's good world, the very first picture of sin is a man and a woman who are naked and ashamed. Where they used to be uncovered and fully accepted, now that sin has come in the world, they are exposed and ashamed. The picture of those in need, the picture of those because of sin, is that they are naked in need of dress, uncovered in need of covering. That's all of us. That's all of us. All of us born into this world, all of us because of sin in our hearts and in our lives, we are uncovered in need of covering, naked in need of dress, and the impulse of the human heart is what you saw from Adam and Eve right after sin enters the world. The first act of self-justification is they try and cover themselves. They look for leaves to cover their own nakedness. The proud in spirit dress themselves. The proud in spirit believe about their uncovering that it's small enough and believe about their resources that it's great enough that I can clothe myself and dress myself. One of my children, I'm not going to name her because, well, anyway. Uh, (laughs) One of my children is in a stage where she likes to pick out her own clothes and she believes that she makes the best decisions about what she should wear. Always, never questions it. And most of the night, it's fine. Like one night, uh, we put the kids in bed, and they had been in bed for like an hour, hour and a half. And then um, my daughter comes out, and she says, Dad, I want to change my pajamas. I don't want to sleep in this. And I said, okay, that's fine. Just go change. And I thought she just went back to bed. So I go back to the room. I'm getting ready for bed. It's nighttime. It's dark. I walk back out. It's pitch black. And I walk into my kitchen, and Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy is standing in my kitchen. (laughs) Full outfit, mask, it freaked me out. It was dark. I said words. It was not good. Um, and she had put on her Halloween costume from last year. And she said, Dad, can I sleep in this? And I'm like still elevated. And, and I was like, yeah. And then before she went to bed, I said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to walk quietly into my bedroom and go scare your mom. And she did. It was worth it. Um, And so that's fine. Mostly that's how it happens. She wants to wear what she wants to wear and it's not a big deal. But every now and then we're going somewhere and she'll come out and she's just not dressed appropriately, right? So she's got a coat on in the middle of summer. She doesn't dress for her needs, right? She'll have shorts on in the middle of winter. And what she's never done in her short little life is she has never come to us before getting ready and said, mom and dad, you know best. Why don't you tell me how to dress? I hear that gets easier once she's a teenager. Um, That is the posture of the proud. If the picture of our sin and our brokenness is that we are uncovered in need of covering, if we are naked in need of dress, the self-reliant, self-justifying heart that exists in all of us, the natural impulse is to try and cover ourselves 
instead of coming to God, asking for covering, believing that we can reach into the closet of our life and reach into the closet, the stories of the world, and find something that's adequate enough for us. And what that looks like is it looks like looking to anything that gives us a false confidence that we are all we need or that the stuff that we have is all that we need or that we can look to relationships around us for all that we need. And so it could be my things, it could be my success, it's anything that we look to that makes me believe that I'm full instead of empty, that makes me believe that I'm clothed instead of uncovered. Tim Keller tells a story about G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was a, a writer, a brilliant mind, brilliant thinker. He was a Christian that lived in the 20th century, early 20th century in England. And he was famous. The Times of London asked him and asked several other writers and thinkers to answer a question. So they reach out to Chesterton and a bunch of his, of his buddies and they say, will you answer a question? And here's the question. What is the problem of the universe? So we all know there's a problem. We've known that for a long time. There's almost universal agreement that things are not the way they should be. And so what is the problem? How would you define that problem? And what they were asking for Chesterton to do was to write an essay, but what he responded with was one sentence, and he said this, the problem with the universe is me. And then he signed his name just to make sure they knew who had written it. That's poor in spirit, that I am the problem. Are there other problems besides just me in the world? Yes. Are there other problems besides just you in the world? Yes. But the poor in spirit says, I am so cognizant of, I can feel so deeply my need that it's as if I'm the problem. It's as if my understanding of my heart and my understanding of my brokenness and my understanding of my need is all that I can see. The poor in spirit understand that there's more problems than just me, but it's not less than me and it's not less than you in the full the proud in spirit, hear that and say, no, 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 it's not me. And then I'm, I'm clothed in all of my achievements. I'm filled by all that I've done. No, 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 it's not me. I'm better than most of those around me. And I'm clothed in this moral superiority. I'm at church and they're not. And no, it's not me. It's what's been done to me. And that's my only problem. If people would have just left me alone or if people had not sinned against me, then as I am, I would be fine. And we grab for these leaves and we never hold on to God. We fill ourselves on the answers that the world offers. We construct our lives by what looks to be right side up and we miss the kingdom that the empty are finding and just continue living right side up. Jesus' words here, friend, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Those words are spoken to turn us on our heads, to turn us upside down, intended to cut through, to pour out, to strip away, to undress, to have us unadorned and unclothed and uncovered before God, unable to point to our things or our resources like the poor, like the lame, like the outcast with nothing to hold on to, completely empty, that we would say, I need him, I can't get to him. He's gonna have to come to me. That's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening, to live life with that kind of honesty. It's frightening to live with that kind of self-awareness and vulnerability, especially in a world where being exposed is the opposite of flourishing. That's what it looks like to shrivel, being found out, being in need, being uncovered, being as frail as we really are. That's not flourishing. That's our worst nightmare. And that's what we've been conditioned to believe. And so it feels so risky to admit that our need is that great. It feels so risky. It feels so vulnerable to say, I'm actually that poor in spirit. And that's not flourishing. It can't be. That's failing unless there is a God who delights 
and filling the hungry. Unless there's a God whose very heart is to cover those who are uncovered, whose very heart is to fill the empty. If there's a God who would meet us on the ground, if we say, I can't get to you, you're going to have to come to me. And God says, that's exactly what I want to do. That's exactly who I am. The kind of God that meets you on the ground at your worst does not require that you find a way to me. Simply requires that we know that we need him. That is the story of the Bible. That's what you see highlighted throughout the ministry of Jesus. It's in the story of the prodigal. It's the son who squanders everything he had and who comes home in failure and he is the one who gets the father's robe. It's the woman who is caught in her sin, exposed and on the ground and she is the one who gets the Savior's arms. God meets us at the end of ourselves. He comes to us. He He who is stripped naked and hung on a cross. He who is thirsty and hungry and empty. The one who gave up his fullness for the empty. Who gave up his satisfaction for the hungry. Who allowed himself to be stripped for the uncovered. So that he could lift you up off the ground. So that he could fill your empty soul with love. So that he could cover you with righteousness. And give you a place at the table in his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh the scandal of the kingdom. That it is for those and only for those who know that they need it. Who look to Jesus for it. And in a moment moment belong to it and the poor in spirit it's like that old hymn rock of ages the cry of the poor in spirit says nothing in my hands i bring simply to thy cross i cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace foul i to the fountain fly wash me savior or i die blessed are the poor in spirit The scandal of the kingdom that it is for those and only for those who know that they need it in their spiritual poverty, who look to Jesus and his cross for it and are instantaneously rescued and brought in and covered and loved by a holy God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Christian, I know that if you've been in church for any amount of time or if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time that you've largely heard everything that you already know about being humble, about knowing what our sin means, about our need for God. But friend, can I remind us that this is not just a conversion conversation. This is an all of life following Jesus conversation. It's not that I needed God before I became a Christian, but now that I am a Christian, I can fill my life with my own achievements and I can cover myself with my own clothes. Brother, sister, we never outgrow, we never outaccomplish, we never outrighteous our need for God. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples to minister and he sends them out and it goes really well for them. God moves in power and they come back excited because all that they did and all that was accomplished and Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, no matter what we go on to do. I don't know how long ago you became part of the kingdom of God. I don't know how long ago it was that God met you in your poverty of spirit and made you a son or made you a daughter and covered you in his righteousness. But I know that no matter what you've gone on to do or what you've gone on to accomplish, we are to never get over that when we were empty, he filled our life with love. And when we were exposed, he covered us in righteousness. And that's the only boast I've got. That's the only boast you have. 
And there's not a moment of a day where we are not in need of him and and looking for life in him. It's why what I hoped marked this series for us is us together spending time with God through practices of morning prayer, evening silence, Wednesday fast, because how we spend our time before God is indicative of our continued expression of need for him. And then I need someone to know this this morning. I don't know who's here. I don't know if you're in the room right now. I don't know if you're listening online, but I need you to hear that this room is full of a certain kind of story. I get to hear it all the time. It's one of my favorite things about what God has allowed me to do is that I get to hear the stories that God has brought together in our church. And the story goes like this. I thought my life was great. Didn't have much need for God. I attended church or I didn't. I believed in God or I didn't. And then something happened. My marriage fell apart. Or then something happened. I lost my job. Or then something happened. I got sick. Or then something happened. I got the call that I never wanted to get. And then I found out all that I was hiding. My world got turned upside down. Something happened and things started to unravel. My life started to empty. My clothes started to fall off of me. And in that place of emptiness and in that place of exposure, God met me in that place. At my worst, at the end of my rope is when God met me and he didn't fix all of my circumstances and he didn't protect me even from all that I feared. But I finally felt my poverty. I finally saw my need for God. I couldn't get to him. And in realizing that, he came to me with everything I need. That story's all over this room. That story's all over this church. And I say that now because some of you are here and you are in the middle of that story. Or rather, you're at the bottom of that story. Would you consider, if you're at the end of your rope, would you consider if you've lost, if these last six months have just been one stripping away after another, one disappointment after another, if your worst nightmare is your right now and you somehow mustered up the courage to listen online or you somehow mustered up the courage to walk in this room right now, could it be that God in his mercy, friend, could it be that he is doing the good work of emptying your life of all the things that you have let ignore your need for him that he might meet you at the end of yourself to cover you and to fill you and to invite you into relationship with him in a kingdom that will never end and a God who will never fail you? Could it be? Could it be that he loves you enough to let some things fail underneath you so that at the very bottom he could pick you up? That's what he does. And it hurts, and we wouldn't write it the way that God has written it, but we can't ignore what God is inviting in it. I pray that if that's you, that you would hear now, it's the love of God drawing you into this truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for your kindness to us. God, Would you help us, Lord? Would you go beyond where my words were inadequate to go? Would you, by your spirit, work in ways that are beyond what I have the resources to work? We are a people who have no shortage 
of things to find cover with. We are a people who have no shortage of ways to make us feel full and feel like we don't need you. Even those of us who've been following you for some time. God, in your mercy, would you remind us again how empty we are without you? Would you remind us again how uncovered we are without you? That for those of us who have received your love and those of us who have received your covering, God, that we might rejoice over and again not in what we've done, not in what we have, but rejoice over and again that our names are written in heaven, that we belong to the kingdom that is and is to come and that will never end, and we belong to the God who will never fail. Lord, for the one in the room who just, and I pray, God, I, I treaded lightly and didn't make light of their pain or their circumstances, I pray, God. But for those who you have in your mercy, Lord, done a bit of, done a bit of unraveling, to those who in your mercy, God, you are, have them in a season of being emptied. I pray, Lord, on the ground, they could look up and see your hands and see your arms and see your love that's not too short to save, your grace that's unlimited by our own failures and that they in this moment would believe, God, flourishing are those in their poverty are met by a rich God, rich in love, rich in mercy, rich in power. We need you, God. We need you. It is the cry of our heart, whether we've been a Christian for a long time, whether maybe in your mercy we've been a Christian for just a few moments. It is the cry of our heart that we need you, that we're lost without you, and we'll never grow tired of being reminded of how dependent we are on you. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You've all we got, God. We love you. We thank you. Hear me pray.